do invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our scripture text this morning, which is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Uh, the Word of God brings us uh, this morning to Jesus' upper room discourse to his disciples uh, right before his suffering, uh, death on the cross, eventually leading to that ultimate suffering prophesied in the scriptures. And while you're locating that passage, let me take a few moments to greet you warmly in the Lord. Uh, It is a joy for me to be here with you. As Jerry has mentioned, this is like a family in one sense, uh, to be with uh, familiar faces and many friends in Christ. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to open God's word to you and to seek to uh, feed and nourish you with the riches of Christ from the scriptures while I'm in town for a few days uh, to be with Richard this week. Uh, Thankful for the ministry uh, God has placed in your midst through your pastor. Um, I uh, do pray for you regularly and uh, do uh, continually lift you up in prayers that as the word of God is preached, uh, the pattern of sound words uh, proclaimed to you from week to week would uh, both build up and guard this church and to shape and style your walk. And even as I pray for my own congregation, the dear flock in Duluth, I do pray that the center of gravity of your life would be continually and non-negotiably placed in God and heaven. And as you walk in this world, that gravitational pull upon your heart would be heavenward and Christ's word. John chapter 15, uh, we'll consider the first 17 verses. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ is in the upper room on the eve of his crucifixion. He has just shared his uh, last Passover meal with his disciples, and Judas Iscariot has already gone out into the night to betray the Lord Jesus. And when the, Lord, uh, when the atmosphere in the room, as you can imagine, is quite heavy with the forebodings of the coming hours, when the disciples' hearts were distressed and unsettled, uh, Jesus begins to instruct them in order to help them, to strengthen them, to comfort them, to assure them, to equip them for what is coming, what they would face in life. The very same work the Lord Jesus does to you whenever the scriptures are opened in the power and under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We'll read our passage beginning in verse 1 in chapter 15. However, I do want to backtrack a little bit and read to you uh, where Jesus' discourse begins in chapter 14, uh, verse 1. Jesus speaks these words, um, keep in mind, while his own heart was greatly troubled at the coming hour, the Lord Jesus says, chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. The antidote that Jesus has for his disciples who are anxious, troubled, and distressed in heart is the Lord Jesus. Believe in me. And then the rest of chapter 14, the Lord Jesus speaks of God the Father, whom he has come to make known, the Spirit, also whom the Father and uh, he will send as another counselor, Even as Jesus says, I am going away to prepare a place for you to dwell in my Father's house. Also through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Father and I will come and manifest ourselves and make our home in you and to come to dwell in you. Uh, This is the pastoral method, if you will, of our chief shepherd. The pastoral method of the Lord Jesus to the troubled disciples is... Let me tell you about the Holy Trinity. Let me tell you about myself from the Word. With that in mind, let's turn to chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. I am the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, 
that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Uh, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Thus far, this reading in God's word, let's uh, look to our God in prayer and seek his help and blessing. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you as your needy uh, sheep, uh, looking and longing for the bread of life and waters of life that flow down from on high, and we pray that you would abundantly supply us all that we need uh, through the ministry of the word. I pray that you would revive our soul and rejoice our hearts and enlighten our eyes in the knowledge of Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Twelve men... Uh, were sent out on a 40-day reconnaissance mission to spy out the land of Canaan. Uh, we, it was during the season of the first ripe grapes. The account is given for us in Numbers chapter 13. And you know the story very well. The men who are commissioned to bring some of the fruit of the land back as samplings, as it were, to show to the Israelites what awaited them to give them something of a tangible foretaste of the inheritance in the promised land to which they were called. And it was better than advertised. The land was flowing with milk and honey, exceedingly fruitful. And so when they came to this place called the Valley of Eshkol, we read in Numbers chapter 13 that they cut from there a single branch with a single cluster of grapes hanging upon it. The thing was so huge, so hefty, so bulky, so legendary in size that two grown men had to carry it on a pole on their shoulders as though carrying some wild game after a trophy hunt. Two grown men had to carry the grapes mounted on a pole on their shoulders. Never seen grapes like that. Imagine going to a grocery store in the produce section seeing grapes so large that the cluster can't even fit into your grocery cart and you have to haul it home in the back of your pickup truck and that sort of size we're talking about in the scriptures. The whole valley of Ashkol must have been full of clusters like that. 
but they were just commonplace grapes uh, they, because they were everywhere. There was no need for the people to enter them in the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of the Guinness Book. These were just not something rare at all. All the clusters full of grapes, and the Israelites just brought one sampling, one sample cluster to show what life in the land of rest will look like for the people of God. Well, in using this image of the vine and the fruit-bearing branches about Jesus himself and his disciples, the Lord Jesus is communicating something to us here. Uh, Jesus wants his people united to him to look like those trademark grapes of Eshikol spiritually. Jesus wants to see in your life clusters of fruit, clusters that are extraordinary in size, in abundance, in weight, in sweetness, and in abiding quality. And that is indeed his decreed purpose for you saints, that you be fruitful and fruit-bearing branches. And if you're in Jesus Christ, do be assured that indeed you are fruit-bearing branches. You are already bearing fruit. But exactly what kind of clustered fruit that Jesus is speaking about here when he uses this image of the vine and the branches? Some of you here are undoubtedly accustomed to thinking of fruit in terms largely of success in evangelistic efforts, in terms largely of some visible, tangible results in mission or ministry, or in some outward activities that you engage in. But the fruit that Jesus is seeking in your life is principally the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control as listed in Galatians chapter 5. These qualities that the Spirit produces in a redeemed life, qualities that describe essentially what Jesus himself is like. And here Jesus is speaking of the fruit to be born in the lives of his people, the fruit that will abide and stand the time of eternity on the day when he returns. And that's essentially what Jesus is speaking about here, the fruit of holiness, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ and fills up the lives of God's people. Which is to say, the fruit that Jesus is seeking is nothing less than conformity to Jesus Christ. The fruit of Christian maturity, the fruit of Christ-likeness. Because at the end of the day, only what is Christ-like will last through eternity. The fruit that will abide throughout eternity is the fruit of Christ-likeness. As Paul puts it at the end of Romans chapter 6, this is the fruit that leads to sanctification and its end being eternal life. Uh, it's the fruit, the Lord Jesus says, which you are already bearing as believers who are by definition in the spirit and raised to the newness of life. And that is quite a staggering and striking thought that your life should be so filled with such fruit, isn't it? The very same things that mark the Lord Jesus are now beginning to be present in your life. And it is all the more striking because throughout the Old Testament scriptures, God himself, God himself frequently addressed his old covenant church, the Israelites, as his own vineyard. We read of this reality in passages like Isaiah chapter 5, Jeremiah chapter 2, Psalm 80, how God plucked a choice vine out of Egypt and planted a vine in its tender mercy and care, making sure that it would yield fruit. He cleared the ground of stones, set a watchtower over it, and looked for it to yield choice grapes. But the choice, fra uh, gr choice vine became degenerate. It yielded sour and wild grapes instead. The vine rather became a symbol and reminder of spiritual failure and unfaithfulness for the people of God. 
And yet it is precisely against that background that Jesus says here as he was about to go to the cross and he declares, I am the true vine. All the fruit that God seeks from his people comes from him. Now what is Jesus wanting his disciples, his fruit-bearing disciples to be assured of in our passage? And I want to seek to unpack our text uh, simply under three basic doctrinal thoughts, followed by three reminders, and then some words of pastoral application at the end with which to conclude. So three basic doctrinal thoughts and three reminders to you and some words of application at the end. Well, here's the first thing that I said before you, and it is that the very essence of the Christian life is being united by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. There's absolutely nothing you can do spiritually separated from Jesus Christ. In fact, outside of Christ, you are as good as dead branches to be cast into the everlasting fire. And they say vine branches are absolutely good for nothing except to bear fruit. It's not good for furniture, good for fuel. Absolutely nothing useful coming from you outside of Christ. But blessed be God that the Lord declared you to be the branches joined to the vine, that by faith you have indeed become united to Christ. And I want simply to remind you this morning that that's the most basic fundamental truth about you, that you belong to him. By faith, you have been united to Christ so that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And so personal and mystical is this union that the New Testament almost has to invent a new grammatical construction to express this spiritual reality and says it's not just the facts and truth about Jesus that you believed in the gospel, but as you receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation, you have actually believed into a living, exalted person. You have believed into Christ, the Lord Jesus, so that you are in him and he is in you. You have been engrafted into Christ, you have been incorporated into Christ, and you are in Christ. Now, our Westminster Larger Catechism is very helpfully structured in such a way as to understand the whole of your salvation in terms of enjoying union and communion with Christ in grace and glory. What a great way to think about yourself and your Christian experience. The Larger Catechism from 69 to 90, summarizing all the benefits that you enjoy they are all organized under that simple heading. It is that you have union and communion with Christ in grace and glory. I was once asked the question, why do they call the catechism larger catechism? Shouldn't it be longer catechism? If there's a shorter catechism, why do they call it the larger catechism? Ever think about that question? I actually did not know the answer, so my answer to that person was, well, it simply enlarged upon the truth. Actually, when you really study this, it will enlarge your soul. It will enlarge your hearts. For those who are preparing for the ministry, it will enlarge your ministry. Those of you who are officers, it will enlarge your usefulness. Be acquainted with a larger catechism. So many young people who are spiritually alive and spiritually minded, perhaps may I suggest to you, begin a larger catechism club. Study it with your peers. Drill them into your mind that provides for you the helpful structure for Christian life. Well, absolutely everything in the Christian life does indeed flow out of your union and communion with Christ. I simply ask, are you in him? And is he in you? Have you cast entirely into a person who is full of grace and truth? And if you are in Christ, if you are truly united to Christ, notice what the source of this union. Notice the source of this union that comes which by faith, which comes by faith. The fact of your being united to Christ, the fact of your being in Christ and Christ being in you is a reality 
that springs out of the soil of the grace and love of God. Notice how Jesus explains this to his disciples in various ways. In verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you that you may bear fruit. And that's the sole reason why anyone is united to Jesus Christ. It's entirely because of the grace and love of God. The truth that you hear in the gospel that it is he who chose you before the foundation of the world to be in Christ. It is he who in his love predestinated you to be called to everlasting glory all in Jesus Christ. So that's the first point, basic reminder to you that the most fundamental, essential, basic truth about who you are is your union with Jesus Christ. But that leads us to the second point. In the second place, uh, we are again here uh, told and reminded that secondly, fruitfulness then in the Christian life depends on our abiding uh, in Jesus Christ. If you are united to Christ, then fruitfulness, your spiritual fruitfulness, comes in the context of your abiding in Christ and your fellowship with him. The very point that Jesus is emphasizing to his disciples throughout the passage, we read in verse 4, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you bear any fruit unless you abide in me. Spiritual fruit can only be born in the context of our abiding in him. Spiritual fruit comes only in the context of our communion with Christ. Our fruit-bearing is conditioned upon the closeness of our fellowship with Christ. So Jesus says, abide in me. Verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. But what exactly does abiding in Jesus look like for you? How does communion that the believer has with the Lord Jesus express itself? How, how, How do you enjoy fellowship with Christ? How does Jesus come to abide in you? Well, here Jesus says this abiding, this communion between himself and a believer is a two-way street. This is a mutual experience. Uh, We abide in Christ and Jesus abide in us uh, in a way that is spiritual and vital and life-giving, just as the branch finds all nutrients and all of life flowing into it from the vine, and the life of the vine comes into the branch, So you enjoy communion with Christ, and his life comes into you. And in that context of close relationship, you go on bearing fruit. And notice two things in our passage that Jesus highlights how this abiding takes place. First, the Lord Jesus says, when you let his words dwell in you richly, verse 7, when his words abide in you, then you abide in him, and he abides in you. Uh, That's the exact same reality we're being told elsewhere in the scriptures as being filled with the Spirit. When his words abide in you, Jesus Christ himself dwells in you. You enjoy his fellowship. His word does all its work, bearing fruit. As you let Jesus' words become the cherished guest, the honored guest, the treasured possession, the controlling influence in you, as you meditate upon and feed upon and digest God's word so that the word sinks deeply into your hearts and it becomes a part of your inner being. When that's the case, the Lord says, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you in terms of fruit bearing. Your fellowship with Christ is nurtured and nourished by the word. The word received in faith and love will do its work in your heart. It'll make you fruitful. It'll make you more like the Lord Jesus. It'll make your fruit abound and increase as you grow in the Christian life. So that's the first dimension the Lord Jesus highlights. You abide in Christ and he abides in you when his word abides in him, in you. But then secondly, also this abiding takes place when you abide in his love. You see that in verse 9 again, Jesus says, As the Father loved me, so have I loved you. And Jesus says, So abide in my love. Now, are you able to really ponder and grasp that remarkable gospel statement? 
what Jesus is saying in verse 9 is that the magnitude of Jesus' love for you is no less than the Heavenly Father's love for him, the beloved Son. As the Father loved me, so have I loved you. Our believers, do you truly believe that? That God the Father loves you no less than he loves his Son. That the Son, the Lord of glory, who laid down his life for you in love, has come to display that love of God the Father towards you. There's supra-otherness about this, as one theologian puts it. Almost inventing a new word to describe what it really means. Supra-otherness. It's beyond otherworldly. What manner of love it is that we should be called the children of God. This is what surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ, which you really need the divine strengthening in your inner being to be able to comprehend together with all the saints. And even then, you haven't even scratched the surface of the breadth, length, height, and depth of it, the love of Jesus Christ for you. And Jesus says, abide in my love. Not abide in your love for me, but abide in my prior antecedent love for you. The thing that will secure your fruitfulness as a Christian believer will be abiding in the love of God for you in Jesus Christ. It is for you to keep yourself in the love of God, as the end of Jude says. As the prophet Isaiah once said to King Hezekiah in Isaiah chapter 37, concerning the remnant of the house of Judah, Isaiah said to King Hezekiah, you shall, speaking of the house of Judah, you shall take root downward and bear fruit upward. What a description of the believer that is, who is abiding in Jesus' love. And when you are enjoying fellowship with Christ in his love, that will make you fruitful. And when that happens, the very evidence that you are abiding in Christ's love is found in your keeping his commandments. That you abide in his love, verse 10, and you keep my commandments, verse 10, you will abide in my love. Now, don't ever get the gospel grammar mixed up there in verse 10. Jesus is not saying that you increase Christ's love towards you somehow, or you, or you qualify yourself into the universe of love by your keeping his commandments. His love for you is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. It is incapable of increase. It's not conditioned upon anything that is in you or done by you. But the Lord Jesus is saying, you're walking in his commandments, your obedience to the Lord in response to his love is the very pathway of fruitfulness and blessedness that he is leading you by grace. That's why the atmosphere of a fruitful Christian believer abiding in Jesus Christ is one of joyful obedience because he has already brought you into the fellowship of love through the laying down of his life, he has displayed that love. And there's no greater love than what he has displayed. As verse 13, Jesus says, he has made you friends who are once sinners and enemies, alienated and condemned, but now brought into fellowship of love because you are not his servants or slaves with a servile, slavish fear but because you are his beloved and his friends, because he has made known to you the love of the Father, so you begin to enjoy the friendship, the counsel of the Lord, the covenant whom he reveals to those who fear him. So you have come to know a friend, and your desire is to walk in his commandments. There is indeed a friend, I think it was mentioned in Sunday school, who sticks closer than a brother, and Jesus is that to you in your abiding in him and he in you. So that's the second thing you are told in our passage, that your fruitfulness depends on your abiding 
in Jesus Christ, you bear fruit as his words abide in you and as you abide in his love in the pathway of obedience. But notice third doctrinal point that Jesus sets before us. If your fruitfulness comes in the context of your fellowship with Christ, then thirdly, notice how any increase in fruitfulness in the Christian life inevitably involves the pruning of the Heavenly Father. Verse 1, Jesus says, My Father is the vine dresser, the fruitless branch he takes away, but every branch that does bear fruit, every fruitful believer the Father prunes so that it may bear even more fruit. The Father bears, uh, Father's desire for the branch to bear more fruit will be expressed in his pruning activity. Uh, Dear brothers and sisters, that is the explanation for all the painful providences in your life, lifelong trials, afflictions, and I only have come to know a few just in the context of this congregation, things that you've been through, things that you can't understand, And it's so sore, so bloody, so ruthless, it seems. When the sharp knife starts slashing away and cutting into you, and you cry out in the face of Job-like experiences for some of you, why? But the Father's decreed purpose for you is to make you more fruitful, to make you Christ-like, for all of eternity. And that's the explanation. And you're told to trust in your Heavenly Father. Listen to Amy Carmichael, that godly missionary in India, when she writes a few verses reflecting on this passage. Amy Carmichael says, what prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the ground the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp steel. What she's saying is when I look around my life, all I see are the bleeding branches cut off in the context of pruning. But Amy Carmichael goes on to say, but with the tried and trusted husbandman, there's not a random stroke in it all. Nothing cut away which it would not have been a loss to keep and gain to lose. In your Heavenly Father's hand, there's not a random or wasted or misapplied stroke. In His infinite wisdom, goodness, and love, His pruning upon you is always pastoral and fatherly, and purposeful with a view to glory. And we know that the Father's pruning will never fail. It'll always accomplish its decreed purpose because it's the exact same pruning knife that has been primarily, first and foremost, applied upon his own beloved son. Hebrews 2.11, in bringing many sons to glory, he should make the founder of their their salvation perfect through suffering. Uh, Within just the next few hours, the Lord Jesus was going to experience the pruning knife of his heavenly Father in his suffering, in his crucifixion, that is going to bear enormous fruit through all of eternity, and you are going to be the fruit born by the true vine. So the master vine dresser has such a glorious design for every single branch belonging to the vine. And whenever you see a mature Christian, someone who is full of spiritual fruit radiating with the glory of Christ, that's the secret behind it. You always see the pruning knife in ways that you may not fully grasp. But this is the principle God the Father has worked upon his Son and upon all the branches that belong to him so that they may bear even more fruit. And when that happens to you in the process, 
It's very painful, never pleasant. But your life inevitably will be a blessing to others in the future. Your life will be fruitful and prove, it, prove to be a strength to others. So those are three doctrinal thoughts with which the Lord Jesus ministers to us. You are united to Christ. You become fruitful as you abide in him through his word and in his love. And the Father will go on pruning you to make you even more fruitful. Well, three reminders then concerning what it means to be fruitful and a couple of concluding applications and then we are through. The first reminder to you is simply this, that the end of fruitfulness in your life is the glory of the Father. Look down in verse 8. Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The design that the Father has for you is his own glory. You glorify the Father by the fruit born in you, and he wants to make you even more fruitful for his own glory, not just in your Christian life on earth, but really on the day of Christ, that Christ, when he comes back, he might be glorified when he sees you filled with a fruit to the praise and glory of God, Philippians chapter 1. And that's the explanation for so many of the events because the Father's purpose towards you is everlasting glory. So the end of your fruitfulness is the glory of the Father. But then secondly, the result of your fruitfulness is the joy of the Lord. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, Jesus says, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Once again, there's such a glorious ambiguity and double entendre here. What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying, I have spoken to you so that my joy will be in you? My joy will be in you as the object of my joy, as in you may become the source of my joy that I can delight in when I see the fruit being born in you. Or is Jesus say, my joy, the joy that I have in my fellowship with the Father, my heavenly joy may be given to you and be found in you? Well, the answer is yes and yes. He will be our joy and we will be his joy. When we bear fruit, we will become his joy. As we live a fruitful life, his joy will dwell in us and characterize our abiding in him. What a reminder this is to you that the Lord Jesus delights in the fruit of his work. This is a thing that he looked forward to for the joy set before him in endured the cross. He longed to see the fruit of salvation being born in his people. And John Owen says, I'm trying to remember, I don't think I've ever preached a sermon in this congregation without quoting John Owen. But John Owen says, the Lord Christ is exceedingly delighted in tasting of the sweet fruits of the Spirit in the saints. When Jesus sees, a, sees you and sees the fruit born in you, he is exceedingly delighted in tasting of the sweet fruits of the Spirit uh, born in you. You will be his joy, and he will also fill you with his joy, the joy that is inexpressible, the joy that is heavy with glory, coming down from the presence of the Father through the Holy Spirit as you abide in Christ. So indeed, the joy of the Lord then becomes your strength as you abide in Christ and you become fruitful. You will indeed go in that joy from strength to strength until the day of glory. So the result of your fruitfulness is going to be the joy of the Lord. But then thirdly and finally, we're reminded here that the sweetest fruit, the choicest fruit, the most ripened fruit in your life is going to be seen in your love to the brethren. Notice how Jesus worked this out. Verse 9, As the Father loved me, so have, have I loved you. 
in verse 12, so as I have loved you, so you love one another, which is my commandment down in verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. What's the sweetest spiritual fruit being born in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Possibly besides the fruit of the lips that confess Christ's name, the fruit of praise, the sweetest praise, the sweetest fruit that you will see in the lives of believers is going to be their love for one another. And that's what the Word of God will produce as the love of God is produced in you through the gospel, as the love of God poured into your heart is reciprocated in your love to Christ and to one another. Christian maturity is going to be seen in Christ-like love. And you can manufacture this kind of love. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the love that can only be produced when that love, which is prior and antecedent, is ministered to you so that your instinctive response is more love to thee, O Christ, and to his people, to whom he has united himself. The sweetest fruit in the Christian life is brotherly love. Well, just a couple of pastoral words, and as we finish, I'm sure there are some here, chapters like this, John chapter 15, leaves you rather depressed and distressed and distraught. When you look at the seemingly meager output of fruit in your life, when you become introspective, you become more and more depressed, actually. You want to be fruitful, but you are so conscious of the lack of fruitfulness, the lack of progress in sanctification. There's so much indwelling sin in you. There's so much besetting sin that still hinders you. There's no joy bubbling up. Such pitiful experimental enjoyment of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Things that were discussed in Sunday school. Struggling to keep up with their devotional life. No matter how much you hear the minister speak about the grace of God in Jesus Christ, all you hear is you need to bear fruit. You need to be better. You need to do more. And let me draw your attention again to the Lord Jesus' statement. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Why look at the branch? Why look at yourself? When all the life and nutrients are found only in the vine, why are you looking at yourself? Look to the vine. You are the branch, united to him by faith. You abide in him. He is the true vine. All your fruit flows from him. Now, this is indeed the last of Jesus' seven I am statements in John's Gospel. You know, all these statements, these uh, self-conscious statements of egocentricity, I am, by which Jesus is drawing needy, poor sinners to himself. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he is drawing you to himself and saying to you, I am the true vine in all your native fruitlessness. So abide in me, Jesus says. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Let the very words of John 15 that you heard this morning abide in you and get back into the basics. And if you crave pure spiritual milk of God's word, if the word of God is truly sweeter than honey to your soul, then the word stored up in your heart will make your life like the land flowing with milk and honey full of clusters of grapes. When the word of God takes residence in your life, the word will go on bearing fruit. This is not your work. This is the work of the Spirit of Jesus Christ bearing fruit in you as you abide in him.
Christ will bring the first fruits of glory into your life in abundance. Your life cannot but bear fruit if you abide in Christ. Again, I want to draw your attention to Jesus' promise. He says, I have spoken these things to you, things you have heard in John chapter 15, so that your joy may be full, so that my joy may be in you. So get out of your introspection, look to the vine, look to the Lord Jesus, and abide in him. Be like Habakkuk. When there is seemingly no fruit on the branches of the vines, when you survey not the land of Israel but your own life and you see no fruit, say with the Habakkuk, the prophet, the righteous who lives by faith, I will yet rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And when your gaze is heavenward and Christward like that, you truly sing with a psalmist, let all singers and dancers alike say, all our springs are found in you. So take a Christward look. But maybe some of you here are quite burdened by the thought that you are severely limited in the Christian life because of old age or maybe lifelong disabilities. Your outer self is wasting away. You're suffering. You are physically limited. There are hardly anything you can do. Oh, you are abiding in him. You are in Christ. The Spirit of God is bearing fruit in you by which he is glorified. It's not the things that you do. You abide in him and he abides in you and you are already fruitful even if you are to be incapacitated. Even in your mental declension, believers united to the Lord Jesus are fruitful branches. Maybe here are uh, some young moms or um, husband and father barely juggling all the balls up in the air and try not to drop any of them. Again, here's a true rest for your soul true reset for your soul. You abide in him, and he abides in you. But then finally, there's maybe some here this morning for whom this actually gives a just occasion for self-examination. You're a branch, but maybe externally only. All your grounds of hope are found in you and not in Jesus Christ. On the day of judgment, all your arguments before Christ will be, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? And the question simply to you is, is there fruit in your life? Is there fruit that mark an evidence of your being united to the Lord Jesus Christ? You externally sing psalms, but there are no words of Christ dwelling in you. You pray, but it's not in faith. You hear God's word and you do not believe. Is there a fruit in your life? Well, just an hour before Jesus spoke these words in the way that disciples didn't quite grasp at the time, the Lord did cut away a branch that did not bear fruit. Judas leaves the room into the dark And when there are no fruits of repentance and turning to Christ, the Heavenly Father says, every branch that does not bear fruit, I will cut away. Maybe some of you are here conscious of your recent backsliding, some specific sin that is hindering you in your own walk. Maybe nobody knows about it. Some secret sin stunting your growth. Listening to the Song of Solomon that says, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that mar the vineyard for our vineyards are in full blossom. Then let this preaching be a reminder to you that abiding in Jesus Christ, the Christian life, requires fox hunting all season, all year round. By the Spirit, you put away sin. You put sin to death. Be killing sin, lest sin be killing you. Repent, cling to Jesus Christ. Abide in him, in his love.
Let his words abide in you all the more. And that's the ultimate difference between Judas and the true disciples. You say with the psalmist, return, O my soul, to your resting place, for the Lord has dealt with you bountifully. And Jesus says, verse 3, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken. You are justified. All your sins have been dealt with. Return to the Lord and abide in him. Well, less than a day later, Jesus would indeed go to the cross to deal with all our fruitlessness, to bear away all the rotten fruits of our sins, all the fruit that we were getting from the things of which we are now ashamed when we lived under sin. On the cross, he took upon himself all the consequences of our fruitlessness, all the sour grapes of our sins, the wages of our sin, which is death. They were all heaped upon Christ so that you may be brought to the true vine and receive life and begin to bear fruit in union with him. And it is he who gives you his fruit. And as if to symbolize that exchange, and when I was here last summer, last time I preached, I preached Jesus' word, I thirst. Remember how Jesus drank, not just from the cup of wrath, but he had to take the sponge dipped in sour wine, put to him on a hyssop branch to symbolize the fact that he is the one taking all the sour grapes of our sin, the rotten fruit of our sins. He received the death we earned so that your life may be more full of clusters of grapes than the valley of Eshkol, so that you may go on bearing fruit in the newness of life. Jesus Christ, the true vine, became like the fruitless branch. He was crushed in the wine press of God's wrath for you so that you may go on bearing fruit by his grace and grace alone. And when that thought captures you and captivates you, that he is the true vine, then you simply let out the cry, Oh, the depth. What a glorious Savior. And who wouldn't want to abide in him? Well, may God indeed make you fruitful more and more as you abide in him. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we glory in the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glorious riches, in his sufficiency, in the depth of his grace and love poured out upon us, displayed in uh, the depth of his suffering and death. We pray that the preaching of the gospel of the established church, we pray that you strengthen the hearts of the saints, pray that you would indeed produce fruit and fructify the lives of your people for your own glory and praise. And we ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.